as we, as we prepare to continue worship and the preaching of the word, please give attention to the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, with specific attention on verse 42. And this is Peter saying, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Father, in these few minutes that we spend to give attention to your word, we acknowledge before you that apart from you being with us to open up this word to our minds and our hearts, we are completely lost in being able to receive the benefit that we need from this word. We need you to come and to use the power of your word to teach us. We need you to be our, our preacher today you to be the mouthpiece, you to be the power for understanding, you to be the strength for invigorating our wills to obey what it is that you're going to call us to, but to do so, Lord, not from slavish commitment, but from joy and from love and from grace. And so, Lord, we simply submit this to you. We need you to come glorify yourself in this place and meet us, change us. And make yourself known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I mentioned at the beginning of our service today that we started a series last week in this passage of Scripture, especially focusing on in the next six weeks together, verses 42 to 47. We're going to be taking these uh, verse by verse looking today specifically at verse 42 of this uh, text that's before us. I've titled this series, you might notice this in the bulletin, When God Moves. I've titled it that because that's exactly what's happening in the context of this passage. God is on the move. Aslan is on the move, as C.S. Lewis would put it in the Chronicles of Narnia. He is at work. He is moving in the midst of the body of Christ here in Jerusalem, these newly converted believers. 
And he's doing it through the preaching of God's word. He's doing it through Peter, one that he had declared would be a mouthpiece that he would use for the establishment of the church. That's exactly what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2. He's using Peter in that way. And there's an amazing community that burgeons, that emerges when God moves. When God moves, radical things begin to happen in your life and they begin to happen in the lives of those who are around you. An amazing community begins to rise up and that amazing community is what we're seeing pictured for us here in verses 42 to 47 of this text. And because we're in this season known, if you look at the front of your bulletin, we're in the season that's called Ordinary Time. In the church calendar, what that means is this is a time that traditionally believers throughout history, as they have paced their way through the scriptures, they focused ordinary time, the final section of the church calendar, on the life of the church. And so as we looked at Daniel in the early part of the fall, we looked at Psalms over the course of the summer, and now getting our attention to Acts, that's the season where we're really focusing upon the life of the church, the call of Christ upon our lives, and what's leading up to the beginning of the church calendar again, which happens the week after Thanksgiving during the season of Advent, where we return to focusing upon the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really what's sort of cool about the church calendar, it's not one of those things that's commanded in the scripture. It's not one of those things that we have to do, but it's one of those things that we believe helps us kind of root our time and our place because we're following the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and the expansion of his church throughout the church year. This starts during Advent as we're anticipating the birth of Christ. It happens Around the birth of Christ, when he finally emerges in the season of epiphany, of the showing of Christ happens. And then after that, we begin the building up of Easter, focusing upon the ministry and the life of Christ, which leading up to that's the 40 days of what's known as Lent, which mirrors Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness of temptation. It mirrors the picture of the time of his of his ministry leading up to his cross. And then as we go into Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we're at the end of the Gospels at that point, and we're celebrating the story of Christ and his victory in the Gospel. And then where do we go? We go into the book of Acts. And an ordinary time is the advance of the church. It's the church agent. So every year you're running through the cycle of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and emergence of the church and its growth through the church calendar. So I just want you to root that. That's where we are sort of in the calendar. We're leading up to the end of that season. And so it's really appropriate that we're looking at a passage like this that's talking to us about the kind of community that emerges when the gospel's really at work in our midst. Now, I'm going to be quite honest with you. To read a passage like Acts 2, 42 to 47 can be depressing. The reason it can be depressing, it depends on what mood you're in, of course, as you read it. But as you begin to read it, And you see this amazing commitment and sacrifice of these believers coupled with gladness and generosity. You think, that's amazing. Look what's here. It's like it's hard to even believe that this community responded this way to the power of the gospel. And then you begin to take personal inventory of your life. You begin to look at the community that you're a part of. And if we're honest, kind of go, man, my life is a far cry from the picture of the kind of transformation that's being described here in Acts 2, 42 to 47. I mean, when we're having a good day, we spend two to three minutes in the Bible, 
Another couple of minutes in prayers. We're dropping off kids from the minivan. Stuck in traffic and work on our way to Nashville. If we're on a really good day, we say an encouraging word to our spouse. Or, or maybe do something kind, write a thank you note, do something along those lines. And, and then you've got this group here who's like daily getting together, selling their goods, sacrificing for each other, meeting the needs of the community. Everybody was without. There was nobody in the community that was without. Yeah, it's a little different for me. You know, and they're meeting together daily. I mean, it's all I can do to get to church once a week on Sunday morning. I mean, if I really committed to one other thing a week, I'd be like super committed. So what in the world is going on here for this to happen? For this kind of service? I mean, this is not saying, yes, I'll volunteer once a quarter in the nursery. This is like, I'll sell things that I love to meet your needs. I don't know if you feel a difference there. It's a pretty big difference. And so when you read this passage, it would be very easy to kind of go, oh my goodness. Like, are we really wanting this kind of thing to happen? I mean, it's not generosity and gladness. It's grumpiness and greediness. It's characteristic of us. It's not that we're consistent in these works. It's that we're consistently inconsistent. You know, it's not that we're diving in deep to each other's lives. It's that we're on the margin just trying to, just trying to pretty much live incognito most of the time. So I believe that this kind of passage, you can read it and in some ways get a little discouraged and think, man, we're not experiencing this. And you might have another reaction, which is a little bit of fear. What if we experience this? <laughs> oh, no. You mean I couldn't necessarily live the way I'm, I'm living presently? Yeah, that's right. So there's a little fear that kind of goes into this. That's what makes this such an important passage. I believe Acts 2, 42 to 47 is given to really help us raise this kind of question in our hearts and in our life as a community. Are we a people who are really devoted to Christ? That's the question that's being raised in here. Are we a people who are really devoted to Christ? On the back of your bulletin, I write this little piece called The Taking the Message Home Every Week, and I'm asking you a couple of questions this week. One is, if you answer yes to that question... What's the proof that you're pointing to that that's the case? Just do a little inventory. If you answer no to that question, what would it be like for that to change? What would it take for that to happen? If, if you're like most of us, we kind of go, yeah, but not to the degree I'd like to be, right? It's probably where most of us kind of would answer that question. What would it take for the Lord to move us in a much deeper fashion? towards this kind of community. I want you to really take those questions seriously in the weeks to come. In your home fellowship groups, around your family dinner table, discussing what does it mean to be really devoted to Christ? Because I think Acts 2, 42 to 47 helps us answer that question, and it does so by provoking in us that kind of evaluation, that kind of uncomfortable evaluation. And so just as we were processing a second ago with regards to the gospel in confession of sin, no matter what bubbles up ugly, within your heart or within our community, God is so great and his grace is so big that it can cover that too. And as it covers it, it wants to drive you to a deeper and more profound direction in terms of your commitment. That's what we're trying to submit ourselves to in the weeks to come. You see, this passage is a description of the church that is a prescription for the church. All right? 
It's a description of the church that is a prescription for the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible is full of descriptions that are not necessarily prescriptive. Right? We have all kinds of things reported in the Bible like normal actions of people, like they're cooking dinner and they're climbing a mountain and they're moving from one city to the next. And as it reports those things, it's not necessarily saying, you go do likewise. It's simply declaring that this is what happened. It was descriptive. Further than this, it's obviously clear that the Bible reports things that really it's never encouraging us to do. You know, when, when Jacob kills Esau, you don't see at the end of that, Go forth and do likewise. You, you just don't. You don't see that. When, when David commits adultery, the Bible's not encouraging us to do that. In fact, it's painting a description of something, but it's actually giving us a warning, and it's simultaneously saying this is not to be characteristic of one who is a follower of Christ. Other times, however, the Bible describes an event, a circumstance, a person's action, And it uses that not merely as descriptive, but as prescriptive, which is to say, this is something you're being called on to do. This is an example to you to follow. So this passage in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is a description of the church that is prescriptive for the life of the church. And the reason that we can argue this clearly is that everything that we see displayed in this passage is in other places in the scripture commanded for us today. Read the Bible, pray, breaking of bread, fellowship, sacrifice, service, mission. We could go to a dozen passages on each of those subjects of meditate on the word day and night. Do not forsake the assembling of the of the people together. Do not grow weary in doing good. Live a life of living sacrifice acceptable to God. We could go all through the scriptures and what you would see is what you're seeing displayed in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is otherwise also commanded in the word. So we know this is a descriptive picture that is prescriptive for the life of the church. And for that to happen, for that to become something that's really realized in our midst, it's going to take devotion. That's our key concept for today. Our key concept is this idea of devotion. That's what verse 42 really, really picks up on. It shows us the transformation that they had had, cut to the heart, hearing and experiencing the power of the gospel, responding in faith and repentance to the gospel, and then what happened? A life overflowed in devotion to some very particular things that are given to us here in verse 42. Now, how do we know if we're really devoted to Jesus Christ Well, we have to first ask the question, what does it mean to be devoted? What even does that terminology mean? It's the Greek word, proskertero. Proskertero, translated in this passage, devoted. It's used ten times in the New Testament. Six of the ten times, interestingly, it is used in the book of Acts. Luke clearly likes this word. What's interesting is he doesn't use it in the gospel. He only uses it in the book of Acts, which is unusual among writers in the New Testament to only use one word in one particular book if he's a substantial writer. So six of the ten times this word shows up, it shows up in the book of Acts. Three other times it's used in Paul's writing, two in Colossians and one in Romans. And then one other time it's used in Mark's gospel in a really kind of unique way by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now looking up all of these references this week, I found very fascinating is half of the times this word is used, five of the ten, it's used in connection to word, prayer, fellowship, and service. 
Okay, so half of the times this word is used, it's really devoted to the things that we're seeing right here in Acts 2.42. This is its dominant usage. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I'll take three from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is a passage we kind of glanced at last week together. Look at what it says. They were all devoting themselves, speaking of the disciples, with single purpose to prayer, with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Devoted to the discipline of prayer. Now in Acts chapter 6, the apostles are gathered together and they're electing the first slate of deacons that were ever elected. Acts chapter 6, men of noble character, men capable in ministry, clear of conscience in the faith. These men are being elected and we're told that the elders in that context, verse 14, will devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So again, you can see very similar to the context that we're looking at here in Acts 2.42. Acts chapter 8, verse 13. This is speaking of Simon Peter. It says, and even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, it's translated this way this, in this context, he stayed constantly with Philip, which is a picture of fellowship, tight-knitness. They were united with each other. They waited, could even be translated here. The idea of sticking with or staying with someone. Now, we could give a, a bunch of other examples, but you can see in that context a devotion to the spiritual discipline of word and sacrament and prayer and fellowship and service. These are the ways that this word is very regularly used in the New Testament when we look at it. Now, when we see this display that these are the things of what it means to be devoted to, what are the aspects of devoted? What does it mean? What do we look for to be able to say that's devotion? Well, the Bible actually gives us several dimensions to this particular word. The first is that to be devoted is to purpose something. It is to purpose something. We can even use the language of set apart. This is the unusual reference. Look at this in Mark chapter 3, verse 9. You might even make a note of this particular verse. This is Jesus. He's preaching to the crowds. And you know what the crowds are doing? They're pressing in upon him. And you remember this. He's getting close to the shoreline. He's going to fall into the Sea of Galilee. You remember this? And he's going to have to get into a boat and wait out a little way so the crowd can come in. All right? That's the moment. Listen to what he says and listen to how this word's translated here. In Mark chapter 3, verse 9, it says, And he told his disciples to make ready a small boat for him because of the crowd so that they would not crush him. You think, well, the word devotion's not in there. No. In this case, the same Greek word is there, yet it's used by the terms make ready, which is the idea of purposing it, set it apart for this usage. What's the usage it's going to be used for? For Jesus drifting out into the Sea of Galilee. Don't let that boat get away so somebody goes fishing with it. It's got a particular purpose. We are devoting that boat to a particular purpose. Now, we do this all the time, right? You know, I, my wife came home with a whole bunch of groceries a couple of weeks ago, and I love it when that happens. It means we got food. It's awesome. And so I'm going through the bags, and, you know, she picked up some ice cream. This is exciting. Okay, it's very exciting. She knows I'm excited. I'm like, oh, you want some ice cream? You know, I'm thinking, okay, tonight after supper, it's going to be awesome. And she goes, Nate, that's for Katie's birthday. What was she saying? They, that is devoted for a special occasion and a particular purpose. If you touch that ice cream, 
you're going to be in big trouble, okay? Now, in a very real sense, that's a part of what we mean by devotion. It means we're setting something apart for a particular purpose. When we encounter the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, we as people become set apart for a particular purpose. It's the language of holiness. We are now devoted to a particular calling, calling that's no longer our own. It's a calling that comes from God himself. We have been devoted for a particular purpose. We have been set aside. Now, that's not the only thing that has to do with devotion. That's the beginning part. The second thing is this. You have to purpose something, but you have to persist in that something. You have to persist in that something. This is how we usually think of the word devotion. It's the idea of constancy. It's the idea of repetition. It's the one foot in front of the other. It's the plotter mentality, the keeping on, keeping on that we're called to in the Christian life. Let me illustrate it this way. Some of you remember when your parents had the bright idea of making you take piano lessons, right? Some of you children in here know that parents come up with these ideas, and for some of you it takes. For others of us it doesn't take. I know a little bit about this. Parents want their children to grow in the skill of playing an instrument. They want them to know music, right? We're supposed to be well-rounded. That's what they tell us. Supposed to be well-rounded. Supposed to be able to do anything and everything. But even more, what the parents really wanted when they said, hey, we're going to earmark this piano, these piano lessons and all of this, is they want you to learn to love playing the piano. They want you to learn to love playing the piano. They want you to get the bug, you know. They want you to get infected with the passion for playing the piano, and they want you to get a dream. They want you to realize it. Now, here, here's how devotion begins to express itself. In their home, they make a space for a piano, even though they don't have space. They make a space for the piano, and then they set aside some money to be able to buy that piano. Then they set aside some more money to be able to put you through piano lessons. And then they command you in your calendar to set aside an hour a day to practice the piano, and they will make sure that you persist in doing this. Now, what you can see what's going on here. They've set apart space and money and time, and then you've got to actually do it. Like, right, you've got to pursue it. We got this great deal, great deal, two weeks ago on this elliptical machine. Okay, one of our neighbors is moving. Listen, when your neighbors move, you can get a deal. Okay, that's what we learned this day. You can get a deal. You sit over there and go, well, we'll just let that sit for a little while. That price just kept coming down. So anyway, we got this elliptical machine. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it because the dream of actually looking different than the way I look and, <laughs> and feeling different than the way I feel. So it's like, okay, this will, be, this will be good. We've already moved it in. We've put space in it, and we've devoted energy to it. We've devoted some funds to it. i got to get on it. It's, it's the craziest thing. Like, you, just doing all of that won't make it happen. Like, you got to persist in it. But there's something really different than just getting on it and doing it and then having, as it were, the delight of doing it, of having the affection for it because you've got a vision for where it is that you go. It's something really different than just sitting there going, okay, mom, dad, I'll run out this hour and I'll watch the clock to the second. And when it's up, I'm going to get up from this piano and I'll be done with it until tomorrow. See, my two years of piano, I could today, if 
we won't do this, but if I was behind the piano where Greg is right now, I could, I could play you a mean rendition of Chopsticks. Um, that's about as far as it got. Um, what happened was I persisted. I was actually okay, but I never moved into the third dimension of devotion, and it's having a passion for that something. See, you can purpose to do something. You can persist in doing it. But when devotion really strikes is when you have a passion for that thing. It's when the hour is up for piano and you didn't even realize it and you played on another 30 minutes. Right. That's when you realize that something different is happening. Something has actually captured your heart in that moment. And so in, in my case, it's sort of like, Nate, do you want to be good at piano? You know, and every kid says, yeah, I want to be good at piano. I just don't want to put in the work, right? I don't want it bad enough to really discipline myself for it. In other words, I'd rather go work on my curveball out in the yard for Saturday's game. Nobody had to schedule time for me to do that. That came without effort. It was part of the drive that's there. Now, here's what's interesting. Keeping with this extended illustration, the person whose parents force them to take piano because it's a good thing to do, and the person who has a passion for piano because they have a love for it, will actually do many of the same things. They're, they're both going to learn their fingering. They're both going to learn their scales, and they're both going to learn Mary Had a Little Lamb as their very first song, you know, something along those lines. They're both going to, in a sense, go through the rhythm or the pattern of the exercise of learning the piano, but only one has the missing ingredient for true devotion. Only one has the passion. What's the difference? The difference is not what it is that they're doing. It's the heart with which they do it. It's what's going on inside. It's where the driver is. It's where the driver is. Now, it's not enough to simply purpose something or persist in something. At some point, those have got to give way into a passion for that something. For, for this to really, really happen. Now, let me show how that really works out here in the text. Because last week we said we've got to hear the gospel, we've got to experience the gospel, we've got to respond to the gospel for that transformation to happen. And when that happens, what began to happen in, this, in the heart of the early church? Four devotions begin to show up. Now, those devotions are listed here. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. We're actually going to see how those four filter into verses 43 to 47 in the weeks to come. You're going to see that those are unpacked into the life of this body. And not merely in an understanding or knowledgeable way, but in a transformative, operable way. In their lives. We're going to look at that together. But here's what I want you to note. The people who are being converted are Israelites, primarily. They're in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Pentecost. People have come in to sacrifice. What this means is that these are people who had long heard rabbis teach, who had long sacrificed lambs who had long committed themselves to prayer, who had regularly attended the temple. These people had been punching out chopsticks regularly on the piano. And in this moment, 
their heart changed. They had been listening to teaching. They had been praying prayers. They had been attending church. They had their kids in Sunday school. They volunteered in the nursery. They did all of those things. But in this moment, it went from persisting in to passion for. Something, something happened in that moment. Something radically shifted. They're not simply doing these things because it's what they're supposed to do. They're now doing these things because they have met and encountered the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in the message of the gospel. And these things are not things they're conforming to externally. These are things that are flowing out of them from an internal drive. Now, that's fundamentally different. That is fundamentally different. They're, they're no longer watching the clock to see if piano practice is up. There is something real and alive that has changed their heart and has given them a passion for God. And what is it? Well, here I want to say it in a sentence so maybe we can grasp it. The deliverance of God drives true devotion to God. The deliverance of God drives true devotion to God. Okay, that's how it really comes when you begin to realize what it is that he's done. And the deeper degrees that you realize what he's done, the more you're compelled, the more you're driven. This deliverance of God drives true devotion to God. Now, far too often, we see this list, apostles' teaching, fellowship, prayer, and we go, those are the duties of the Christian life. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what God has asked us to do. And we're not complaining about it. It's a good deal. We get eternal life. He asks us to do a couple of things. That's cool. You know, we even see these things as good. We know they're good for us. We know that he's looking out for our own interest here. And really, it's the least we can do for all that he's done for us, right? Read the Bible and pray. And... But you can tell even by the way I'm talking about them, there's just stuff to do. They're just duties. They're just practices. If we primarily talk about them this way, I really should read my Bible more. You know? I, I, we've talked about it for two years, joining a home fellowship group. We, we really should do that. Now, I want you to see the language of that. You know the realization is? You really should do those things. Like, that's right. Those are good. Those are good for you. God wants that for you. But the, inner, the, the indication of that heart is that you hadn't yet got it. Because right now, it's something you ought to do. It's not something you want to do. It's not something yet you say, I will purpose, persist with a passion for. You realize something's missing. Something's missing. And all of a sudden it feels like not the light and easy yoke of following Jesus. It feels like something that oh, ought to get done. I ought to get done. I ought to check this off the task. This is the difference between something being a duty and being a devotion. From something being a duty and being a devotion. Now, is there anything wrong with duty? No. It's a good thing. God's for it. He's for it. There are things that you ought to do. He commands all of the things that we're talking about here. But you know what he loves? Not sacrifice, but a broken and contrite heart. You, you know what he loves? Not just your external conformities. He loves it when you've been so rearranged on the inside that you can't help but do those things because you love him so much. It's different. Duty's great. Duty is often the way God breaks into devotion. 
Somewhere along the way, through the exercise of those means of grace and things we're called, he begins to awaken us. It's great. Should not be forsaken. Some of us have a tendency to go, oh, I'm not really sensing closeness to the Lord. I think I'll take a break from my Bible reading. Oh, don't do that. That's how he speaks to you. You might need to change some things. You might need to talk to someone to get some help. There might be some things that would encourage greater intimacy and aliveness to the Lord, but don't step away from the way in which he actually speaks to you as the means to do that. We want to pray for devotion to take over duty. I want to put it a couple of ways so that you can hear this difference and you can begin to live towards it and ask God for it. That's what's happening here. Right here we're not saying, you know, they were radically converted and then they said, well, we better read the Bible. I guess we better start reading the Bible. Let's, Let's earmark that. Let's get morning and evening out. Read that in the morning and evening. Let's get it done. That's, that's not the spirit here. Spirit here is, it, it, it is like we get to read the Bible. It's different. All right, that's where the work of the spirit comes in. All right, so let me say it a couple of ways so you can feel this difference. Duty happens when the right thing, when the right thing, hear that correctly, when the right thing is unhinged from the vision and the power of God in the gospel. Duty is is when the right thing is unhinged. It's not fully connected to the vision and the power of the gospel. Devotion happens when that right thing is engaged with and empowered by God in the gospel. Okay? There's, There's another penny that's dropped with devotion. Something has invigorated. Okay? Let me say it another way. Duty is motivated by responsibility to God. We have a responsibility to God. Devotion is motivated by love of God. Duty performs because it's what we're supposed to do. It's what God calls us to. And that's good. Devotion performs because we want to know God and we live to please Him. Feel a difference? Duty unchecked over time creates a heart and a life that is externally conformed and religiously moral and internally and spiritually vacuous, unchecked over time. That's what it creates. Devotion, however, renews us by creating a heart and life that is passionate for God and living in sacrifice to Him and His people in the world. Okay, you see all those differences? And so this particular devotion piece and duty piece is critical to what it is that we're praying that the Lord God would bring into our midst. That's what we call a fresh wind of the Lord when that comes in. Now, as you can see, those of you who were with us last week, I asked something of you. I ask you for the next 40 days, beginning last Sunday, leading up to our anniversary as a congregation, our fourth anniversary on November the 20th, to read every day for 40 days this passage that we're looking at this morning and to pray at the end of it. Now, some of you are going, oh, man, you did. I totally forgot. That's all right. There's grace for you. You can pick up now. Some of you are like, I did it so well. I'm awesome. (laughs) And I would say to you, 
there's grace for you too. Okay? I don't know where you are in that mix, but there's grace for all of us. It's kind, okay? Whatever you fall in on that. Some of you are like, I wasn't here, now I'm behind. And you know, all this. You're fine. You're really fine. We're seeking to submit ourselves to the Lord through this, okay? Now, as, you, now, as I gave that instruction, you know, it didn't bother me at all. But it would be really different to read that as a duty or as a devotion. Does that make sense? Did it stop me from giving that command or that instruction? No. No, it didn't stop me. Because I trust the Spirit of God. I trust the power of His Word. I, I gave that to believe that the Lord will do what He plans to do, what He wills to do, and what He wills to do is right. But I'll, I know that the Pharisees read the Word really faithfully. Right? I mean, they, they, they prayed a lot more than you and me. And missed it. All right? So what we're calling upon the Lord to do is, is not merely go, Lord, I have to read my Bible more like this. Lord, the Bible reveals and expresses to me your love for me. And I want to know you. Prayer, it's not just me having to check off something. Prayer is how I get to express my heart to the Lord and have my will aligned to His. And I long for that. Fellowship is not merely, I've got to join a home fellowship group, got to get co connected in a Sunday school, I need to have people over to my house. It's not this working piece, though that's important and we need to do all of that. Fellowship is saying, this is when we get to share together in the love that God has called us to and together encourage one another in the work of ministry. Now you can tell as I'm reframing each of these, we're talking about communion. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about growth. We're talking about life. We're talking about being captured by what it is the Lord might be pleased to do. And find that in our minds and heart is beautiful and glorious and worth completely giving our lives to. You know, it's, it's astonishing. Like sometimes even in my own mind, I'll sit there and go, oh, you know, Oh, we've got to do that, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do that, and we've got to do this, rather than we get to do this. We get to do this. This is a, this is a gift. Why, why is it weighted in this way? Why is it burdened? It's burdened because I'm doing it out of the exercise of the flesh. I have another dream and vision that I'm really living towards, and so I don't have a passion for this right now. And so I need to be renewed, and I need the Lord to lift this up, and I need him to paint it before my mind in such a memorable way that I'll continue to be captured by it. And that's what we're, we're asking him to do. So do you see this difference? One works primarily from law. One works from grace and transformation. But one works often from guilt. Well, I, 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 I need to sign up. I, I, I need to do that. I ought to. And the other works primarily from... This will be an opportunity to express the love of Christ. Okay? And so we're asking that change to happen. Listen, that change happens when, that kind of change happens when we experience not our devotion to God, but God's devotion to us. That's where the change happens. That's where the change happens. When we're focused on saying, this is what I ought to do, this is what I'm doing for the Lord, this is how we, we, the energy is going the wrong direction. What it is that we're saying is, Lord, I see how remarkably devoted you have been to me. That from before the foundation of the world, you had 
me on your mind and your heart. And you have moved all of human history to the point of expressing your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And now you have given me the deposit of your Holy Spirit and the Word. And you have promised as I walk through life, when I fall and when I'm successful, you will cover it both with your grace and you will carry me all the way home. And right now you've gone to prepare a place for me that there's no way I could ever afford the mortgage on the place that you're going to build. But it's okay because you've already paid it. And all the meals that I'm going to eat for all eternity, you've already purchased for me. All of the friends in the community that I'm going to share, you've already secured for me. You see how that radically changes? When you just cannot believe the gifts that the Lord has given you over and abundance to what you even knew to hope or imagine or ask. All of a sudden, what begins to move from duty is into devotion. Because you are now seeing it's never been about you being devoted to him. It's been about him being devoted to you. And in that devotion, all of a sudden, your devotion shows up. And guess what? Your devotion, when it shows up, that's him too. In you. It, you can't even take credit for that. That's his gift. So rejoice in it. Give thanks for it. Plead for it until it comes. And as we pursue him, we're going to ask him to make us this kind of community. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, this, this word from Acts 2.42 is one we need to hear. We're just going to be really honest with you. We're not anywhere close to where we need to be in terms of this descriptive prescription for the church. Lord, I confess personally, I'm not where I need to be. You're showing me that through this process. And together, we're on a journey to explore where it is that you want to take us. And we don't know what that will mean. And we don't know what obstacles of the flesh that we're going to encounter. We know that it will be challenging. But I pray that you would not allow us to rest until this happens. Until this happens. We are asking you to so provoke our souls that we, anything stopping short of this vision simply will not do. And Lord, we can't grunt it out. We can't just organize it and make it happen. We will make steps of faithfulness in duty to you and in embrace of your grace, but it's you who's got to grant the harvest. It's you've got to change us in this community. In these 40 days as we're devoting ourselves to this reading and to this prayer, and we're saying to you, Lord, create this community at Cornerstone and start with me. We mean that, Lord. And even when we don't, we pray that you'll hear your spirit that groans within us and answer his wishes and not ours. We ask this in Jesus' name.